Managing secure access to cloud resources is getting more complex, and a misconfiguration can easily turn into a major breach. That's why there's Teleport. Teleport is the easiest, most secure way to access your cloud infrastructure. The open source Teleport Access Plane consolidates everything you need for secure access to your Windows and Linux servers, Kubernetes clusters, databases, and internal applications like AWS Management Console, Jenkins, GitLab, Grafana, and much more. Teleport's unique approach is not only more secure, it also improves developer productivity. Download Teleport today at goteleport.com slash cloudcast. That's goteleport.com slash cloudcast. Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hope everybody is doing well. We are getting very close to the end of February 2022, and uh, lots going on in the world. Uh, sometimes some things good, some things not so great, but I uh, hope everybody is doing well. Another, another Sunday perspective show. Glad to be with you. Um, I want to dive into a topic that, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I've, we've, we've covered some things around lessons learned. And I was listening to a podcast. Well, a couple of things kind of uh, connected the dots for me this week. Um, as many of you know, if you follow uh, Kubernetes, if you're around the Kubernetes community, um, there was a document, uh, two-part documentary series, a two-part um, sort of movie, if you will, that came out from the CNCF, was sponsored by uh, by the CNCF and a couple of, uh, you know, sort of the early people involved with Kubernetes. And it was kind of a, you know, history of Kubernetes, right? How did it get started? Um, you know, where are we today? Um, and it involved, you know, a number of the people who were there in the very, very earliest days. And one of the things that was interesting to me, so the documentary itself was interesting. If you were part of the Kubernetes community, um, sometimes it's good to sort of go back and, and relive, you know, how we got to to where we are today in terms of, you know, this thing that started as a, uh, you know, a couple of people trying to, you know, create a, uh, you know, what we, what's the best word for it? Kind of a replication, a, a replica of uh, a service internal to Google that was very, very useful called Borg, uh, became Kubernetes. Um, how the process became open source, how the foundation, uh, you know, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation was was created, and um, you know how Kubernetes went in there, and, and kind of the whole process of how it went from a very Google centric thing to a lot of different companies and developers being involved. And so that part was interesting. The other part that was interesting is, as you know, you know, we've had uh, we've had uh, Brandon. Uh, from Software Defined Talk on the show, uh, you know our friends over there. Those guys do a great job. If you're uh, into into podcasts, if you you know, best way to think about it is if you take Cloud News of the Week um, and turn it into a, a full podcast. Is a lot of what the uh, Brendan, um, Brandon, uh, Brandon, Brandon, Matt Ray, and uh, and Cote do. Uh, plus, they dive into a whole bunch of other topics. But what was interesting was they were kind of reviewing the video, uh, the video series, and one of the topics that that came up. And and if you listen to the show, you've you've heard him talk about it before. Uh, Cote sort of said, look, you know, and, and, and he's, he's very good at focusing on sort of, uh, you know, the developer side of things, right? Not so much the infrastructure side of things, but the developer side of things. And he sort of kept asking this question. He said, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me still necessarily why Kubernetes ended up being successful. Because at the end of the day, you know, if you look at the most basic concepts of what Kubernetes was trying to do, yes, it was trying to, you know, find a way to orchestrate containers, but it was ultimately designed to, um, you know, to help build cloud native applications, right? Create a, an experience for developers that would be, make it easier to build cloud native applications. And, you know, he sort of came back and he said, well, that's all well and good. And that's a great uh, goal, but you know, if you look at Kubernetes today, and you you know look at it by any measure, uh, by you know lots of different 
commercial offerings that are out there, the open source offerings that are out there, it still doesn't have a great developer experience. And in fact, it doesn't have sort of one well-defined sort of canonical developer experience. And so, you know, he kind of posed the question of like, if that's the case, you know, was this Kubernetes thing really just about, you know, how to orchestrate containers, which doesn't really serve a distinct business function if the applications aren't there? And and how did it get so successful if it never got a developer experience right? And so I thought, you know, that's really a great question. Um, and it's still, you know, to a certain extent, it's a little bit baffling as to, you know, how Kubernetes became as successful as it was, how it won out over things like Docker Swarm or uh, Mesos and Marathon and some of the other things that were out there. Um, and so I thought what I would do is sort of in the same vein as we've done sort of lessons learned from other technologies, um, sort of having lived through it um, and I kind of give my perspective on how, you know, Kubernetes got to the point it was um, without some of those things being at the center of its success. So we'll dig into that right after the break. Today's show is sponsored by CloudZero. For software-driven companies focused on growing margins, CloudZero is the only cloud cost intelligence platform that puts engineering in control by connecting technical decisions to business results. By analyzing cloud services like AWS and Snowflake, CloudZero provides real-time cost insights that help you maximize margins. Engineering teams can answer critical questions like, who are my most expensive customers? How much does this specific feature cost our business? What's the cost impact of re-architecting this application? With cost anomaly alerts via Slack, product-specific data views, and granular engineering context that makes it easy to investigate any cost, CloudZero is your complete cloud cost intelligence platform, connecting the dots between high-level trends and individual line items. Join companies like Drift, Rabbit7, and SeatGeek by visiting cloudzero.com slash cloudcast to get started today. That's cloudzero.com slash cloudcast. Today's sponsor is Datadog, a real-time monitoring platform that unifies metrics, logs, and distributed traces from your cloud containers and orchestration software. Datadog's container-centric monitoring features allow you to track the health and performance of your dynamic container environment. The container map provides a bird's-eye view of your container fleet, and the live container view searches, groups, and filters your containers with any criteria, like tags, pods, or workspaces. To start monitoring your container clusters, sign up for a free trial today, and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Visit datadog.com slash container dash cloudcast to get started. That's datadog.com slash container dash cloudcast. And we're back. And, you know, as mentioned at the top of the show, uh, you know, those, those two things really kind of you know, I've been trying to sort of figure out how to connect the dots because I, I thought uh, you know my, my you know the, the good folks over at uh, Software Defined Talk had a, a nice conversation about it, and 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 Cote's comments again kind of resonated with me. You know, how did um, how did Kubernetes end up succeeding? Because on one hand, uh, Kubernetes didn't invent Docker; they didn't invent containers. Uh, that was sort of you know uh, it was a Docker thing, and you know you could argue containers had been around for a little while, but but Docker was you know really you know had built this enormous community. And then you had, you know, some other viable technologies that could run, you know, cloud native types of applications, in some cases, containerized applications that were out there, you know, before Kubernetes came along. So to a certain extent, you had, you had Cloud Foundry, uh, which obviously, um, you know, was different technology under the covers, but, uh, you know, had developed a very, um, you know, well-defined, opinionated way of building you know, particularly Java applications, but, uh, you know, was out there and, and was viable. You had uh, Mesosphere and, and Mesos and Marathon, which were uh, out there in, you know, 
large environments, uh, a lot of a lot of big companies, uh, Apple and, and many others, uh, Netflix and others who are using it in production uh, for you know in many cases their big data applications. Um, you had Docker, uh, you know, beginning to roll out Swarm. So they were, you know, trying to sort of take the Docker approach of let's make things simple and very developer friendly, uh, extend that out to a, a container orchestration system in Swarm. And so, you know, it sort of begs the question, right? If, if there was a way to, you know, to build sort of opinionated job applications, if there was kind of a way to, you know, be developer friendly with containers already and there was one sort of big data, how did Kubernetes ever end up winning? How did that thing happen? And, you know, I wrote the thing, and I'm going to kind of walk through my, my thought process, but I wrote a thing um, you know, on one of the Slack channels that I follow, kind of how I think it happened. And again, people can have differing opinions. I think, uh, you know, in general, this is sort of what happened in the market. But again, uh, you know, some of my my viewpoint may end up being biased by having worked, uh, you know, in this space, but was working with a specific product. But anyways, um, you know, I think the first thing that, that came to mind was, uh, you know, Mesos, uh, Cloud Foundry and Swarm, to a certain extent, uh, not not completely, but to a certain extent, were were all more or less sort of single vendor dominated open source projects, right? Uh, Mesosphere essentially dominated Mesos project. Um, although again, you know, there were people like Apple and, and Netflix and others. They weren't huge contributors to the project; they were users. Um, Cloud Foundry was very much dominated by Pivotal, uh, although IBM and you know a few others uh, were contributing. But but Pivotal was the dominant player, and obviously Docker was the uh, you know dominant player in the Swarm community. So I think, to a certain extent, you, you know, there was uh, you know market concern about, hey, this this trend is definitely happening. We're seeing people using containers and building new types of applications, but do we want to go through yet another kind of iteration uh, within our industry of something being, you know, single vendor, right? And again, that, that argument, um, you know, can be made, you know, uh, in a good way. Hey, single vendors tend to build, you know, highly integrated types of offerings. Uh, on the flip side, you know, when you're dealing with an open source project, do you want it to be dominated by, you know, a single, you know, kind of company or single leader, you know, benevolent dictator, if you will. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think there was there was some customer concern about that or market concern about that. And that that gave an opening to something like Kubernetes that, you know, came out and said, hey, yes, we originated with Google, but we are going to be a uh, open open project. We are going to have an open foundation that will drive the governance of it. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, there was a number of, of both companies, but individual developers that got involved early on, whether it was Red Hat or CoreOS or Microsoft or others, um, that kind of gave the market some sense of, okay, well, whether or not this technology is the right one, at least it seems to have a little more diversity of you know who's has who has a say in it, right? Uh, the second one was I think Mesos for the most part um, you know was kind of focused entirely or primarily on big data and analytics, and and there's nothing wrong with that. That was sort of its origin of where it came from, uh, having come out come from from out of university research. Um, the downside to that was. If you were a company that was wanting to say run Java applications or or something else, you know Python or Ruby or whatever, uh, you weren't running big data types of applications. Um, you know, in order to be able to the way that the Mesos worked um, in working with things like Marathon and other um, you know kind of frameworks, application frameworks on top of Mesos, you you had to kind of grab the framework for the application that you were building, and so it wasn't necessarily designed to be a general purpose, you know, kind of container orchestrator. It was very much, you know, designed to, to focus on a, a subset of, of use cases. And obviously, data and analytics is a, you know, a huge um, 
portion of the market um, in terms of you know volume and capacity, but it wasn't necessarily something that was going to be the easiest thing in the world to get um, other types of common business applications maybe running, right? So it had a little bit of, of nichiness. Um, and you know, what's interesting is, you know, if you go back and you look at kind of the, the framework that's built on top of Mesos, so things like Marathon and others, um, you know, the Kubernetes community eventually kind of kind of copied that with um, you know with CRDs and um, and so forth. So you know, but at the time, I think there was there was a certain amount of okay, well, you know, do I want to you know create a, a new silo of this? And Kubernetes actually did a a reasonably good job, at least from day one, of supporting um, kind of a broad set of types of use cases. Um, that could be brought, you know, to this, to this, you know, to this scheduler, if you will. So, it wasn't all of them. Obviously, a lot evolved, but that was another thing I think that, you know, you heard from people in the community and, and different companies and so forth about, you know, why Kubernetes might be, you know, a, a choice for them. The third thing um, was uh, Swarm was interesting technology. It was, you know, very embedded in the sort of Docker experience, Docker desktop experience, and and so forth. Um, but it wasn't terribly scalable, right? The original version of it was uh, very peer-to-peer, um, and then it, you know, they had to sort of rewrite it and, and build it in a, a more scalable way. And by the time they started writing it in a more scalable way, Kubernetes had sort of come along and been like, "Hey, we're, we're kind of giving you Google scale by default." Uh, now, not fully Google scale, but you know, hundreds and thousands of nodes that could be scheduled and managed versus um, you know a smaller number with Swarm. So there were companies who were, you know liked some of the integration that Swarm did. Again, it kind of fit that that Docker, you know, Apple-centric, uh, not Apple the company, but sort of, you know, all integrated approach. And But the scale of it ne- didn't necessarily work. So if you were going to bring a, a big data application to it, you know, maybe Swarm wasn't going to be on your checklist, right? So, so you had these other projects and they were, you know, interesting in their own right, but, you know, maybe weren't open enough or weren't uh, flexible enough for a broad set of use cases or scalable enough. And it opened up enough opportunities for folks to say, hmm, maybe I will consider an alternative where that, is, that alternative was Kubernetes. Now, um, you know, the other thing, uh, you know, so Kubernetes comes along and it's sort of this this good enough platform. It's not dominated by a single vendor, um, you know, and it, it has some flexibility. And there's an interesting sort of hacker news article that came out uh, not too not too long ago, kind of after the um, the documentary came out. And Joe Beta said, uh, Joe Beta being one of the original uh, creators of the project when he was at Google, eventually went on to start Heptio, which got sold to VMware. And he said, you know, you could use it natively, or you could build some, you know, sort of platform like things on top of Kubernetes. So, you know, to a certain extent, there was at least a, a promise or a hope that you know, this thing could be very container centric, but it could also, you know, be the foundation for something that could be more PASI, right? Sort of PAS, if you will. And, you know, if you go back to the 2013, 2014, 2015 days when this was getting started, even 2016, you know, PAS was, you know, considered a viable thing, right? Cloud Foundry was a real thing. And, um, you know, Heroku was a real thing. And people were like, you know, maybe PAS is the way to, to do things for, for developers. So, you know, again, you have this, you know, kind of, hey, maybe it's good enough and maybe it could be evolved to, to do other things. Um, and so I think when you think about all those things, it sort of lays the foundation for why Kubernetes became successful. Now, you could argue, you know, we're still at a stage in 2022 where Kubernetes has become very successful um, in terms of a lot of different metrics, right? We see uh, it's essentially 
kind of won the container orchestration wars, right? Um, you know, Mesos, Mesosphere, you know, eventually adopted Kubernetes. Uh, Docker sort of had to eventually adopt Kubernetes. Um, Cloud Foundry moved, you know, from being its own company you know, or Pivotal to moving over to VMware. It's kind of become part of the, the Kubernetes thing. So the Kubernetes piece of it has sort of won out in terms of, um, you know, the other technologies aren't really being invested in. Uh, by other metrics, we see, by most survey data that we get back from, you know, what the market's doing, uh, a lot of companies are are using Kubernetes now. Some are obviously much more mature than others, and and um, you know, but we do see uh, you know broad adoption. We do see uh, use cases and success stories from companies in you know nearly every industry and, and from every part of the world, and we see you know, success at different scale, right? So some are using thousands of nodes and, um, you know, some are using, you know, a few hundred or a few tens or so forth. But, you know, if you're in the container space and you're trying to build your applications in which containers are going to be the the packaging and delivery mechanism, you know, from those perspectives, Kubernetes is, has sort of, you know, won or is, is successful. Um, we've seen, you know, quite a bit of VC investment. We've seen quite a bit of, um, you know, M&A activities uh, around things that were Kubernetes, whether they are, uh, you know, direct Kubernetes distribution, so like a core OS or something. Uh, but we've seen a lot around security. We've seen cloud services get started, all those sort of things. So from that perspective, it's become a very, you know, healthy, robust ecosystem. There are a lot of different options for uh, customers in the market, whether they want to do things themselves, whether they want to buy software distributions, whether they want to consume managed services, all that kind of stuff. Now, it still does come back and beg the question, um, you know, how how is it continue to be successful if its goal is to help develop, you know, developers be successful and there's not sort of one definitive um, uh, developer experience? And and I think to a certain extent, you, you kind of have to, what's the best way to explain it? You kind of have to suspend belief a little bit or suspend the idea that in order for it to be successful, it has to have a defined experience, right? And and you know, I think if you if you look at it, one of the things with, with Kubernetes, and this has been um, you know part of its success and part of the frustration of people is Kubernetes in a lot of cases hasn't defined a lot of things. Uh, they've sort of allowed the market to you know or the you know the community around it to to try different stuff, right? There are multiple installers for how Kubernetes works. There are multiple ways, um, you know, it's kind of narrowed down, but multiple ways to, uh, you know, do networking, to do storage, to do, uh, you know, bring a service mesh to it or other things like that. So, you know, part of the success of Kubernetes has been that, you know, it didn't fall into the trap that happens with PaaS platforms in which, um, you know, it's good enough until it's not good enough. And then you get frustrated and you start over. Um, you know, it's it's given a lot of different organizations a lot of flexibility. And I think that's part of its success. Um, it does beg the question of, you know, will there ever be kind of a canonical, not from the company canonical, but kind of a, you know, well-defined or a well-opinionated or a well-adopted, you know, way of building on Kubernetes that's not YAML. And, you know, I, I think the answer to that is probably maybe, right? We may see, um, you know, certain companies kind of push an approach. I mean, we've seen things like Helm, we've seen operators, um, you know, VMware now has a uh, you know, Tanzu um, application platform, which, you know, kind of brings some of the cloud foundry-like opinionation, uh, you know, kind of paths-like opinionation to it. Uh, we've seen uh, OpenShift from Red Hat do a number of things that are somewhat paths-like without being fully paths-like, but again, opinions with with some flexibility. Um, 
you know, and, and then we've seen, you know, a lot of companies that are that are building, you know, different types of tooling. And we've, we've talked about that on previous shows. So, you know, I think that the hardest thing, uh, as, I've, as I've, you know, had listened to, to Cote on a number of episodes of SDT um, and another number of shows, I, I think, you know, he had kind of come from the perspective of, hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on Cloud Foundry, you know, we've seen success with sort of an opinionated thing. The other approach doesn't make sense for me. And I think the the only way to sort of logically make sense of it is um, it's okay that there's not a lot of opinionation, right? The the other underlying aspects of Kubernetes kind of won the day, and it it still leaves the door open for somebody or multiple people, multiple companies, multiple offerings to come in and be that definitive, you know, developer experience. And I think the other thing that sometimes is confusing about this. Um, and again, I don't know it for complete fact, but I know from having talked to a lot of companies, you know, the idea of saying what's the developer experience um, does limit things a little bit. And here's, here, let me give you an example. So, you know, in the case of, you know, back in the PaaS days, again, any PaaS, they always were somewhat opinionated, but then they were also somewhat opinionated for a distinct, oftentimes language set or framework, right? So, uh, you know, it could be around Spring Boot, it could be around uh, Ruby, it could be around Python, it could be around whatever. And I think at least what I've seen in the marketplace and having talked to a lot of different, you know, implementers of this stuff, the the problem that people have is that there is no one developer experience because, you know, there's going to be developers that use different tools that use different languages and different frameworks. So you almost have to think about if I want to build a great developer experience, and if Kubernetes happens to be under the covers, what am I doing it for? Um, And if you're trying to do it for, let's say, Java applications, that's fine. You can probably be really successful doing that with a certain approach. But there's also the flip side of that, which is you're probably not going to be terribly successful trying to take that exact same approach and saying, well, uh, you know, data scientist with your, you know, Python and Jupyter Notebooks and, uh, you know, TensorFlow or whatever else you're doing, that's probably not going to exactly work. And if, if I try and force that Java-centric opinion on you, you're going to likely go, well, I don't want to use your platform because it doesn't allow me to do what I want. And so maybe the answer to this, will there be a great Kubernetes experience is going to be, you know, can you build a great experience for a certain language or a certain framework or a certain whatever, but do it in a way that, it, you know, in essence, it becomes kind of a modular plugin, um, similar to the way that Kubernetes today does uh, CSI and CNI for um, container network interface or container storage interface. Maybe there needs to be sort of like a, you know, again, this is just spitballing ideas, but like a a CDI, a container developer uh, interface, in which case, you know, a VMware could plug in the the Tanzu approach that is, you know, Java-centric or Spring-centric and and then it could live uh, right next to somebody who goes, hey, I built an approach that is you know data science uh, specific, or I built one that is you know around a certain uh, framework and stack, or it's you know mobile centric or something. Maybe that's the approach. Um, I don't know that we necessarily need a, a you know a container developer interface the way that we did for networking that has you know sort of specific things. But maybe that's the mindset that kind of has to happen of you know. Kubernetes is a platform that was it was you know designed to be the framework or the foundation for then building subsequent higher level frameworks, and what that it means by definition is there's not going to be one, and and that's okay, right? So, 
you know, I think if, if I, as I think about this and I kind of go through my notes as I was kind of trying to rationalize the, the really good question that Cote had, which was, you know, how did it get so popular if it didn't meet one of its main objectives? And I think the, the, the only way to come back and think about it is it met its objectives because the way that it solves objectives or solves problems is not to come up with one answer, but to come up with the ability to have multiple answers, which I know sounds crazy if we were doing math or, you know, trying to be rational. But I think that's kind of the only way to, to kind of rationalize not only how it became successful, but that that modularity, that flexibility was at the core of its success. And even though that does maybe make the system harder than other systems, um, it then also at the end of the day allows company A or group B or whatever to go, I built the thing the way that we need it to be. And it might be different than group C or group D did it, but that worked for us. And how group C or group D did it is going to work for them. And the fact that they aren't exactly the same, but they're still sort of Kubernetes and containers under the covers is, you know, proof that the system worked as it was expected. Um, It's not perfect. It's not always utterly elegant, um, but it, you know, it took advantage of sort of what it was designed to do, um, even though that may not always fit into kind of a perfect plan or a single way of doing things. So anyways, um, that's kind of how I rationalized it. That's kind of how I got myself to the point of going, yeah, uh, you know, it is where it is in the market. And if you look at how it's used in the market, that's kind of, that's kind of how it is. So, um, you know, I'd love to hear other people who are living in the, you know, Kubernetes community or implementing things on Kubernetes, sort of why you chose it and, you know, what you do with it. We'd love to kind of get your feedback on stuff. Um, if you want to come on and talk about it, we'd love to hear it. But, um, you know, from a perspective, uh, you know, Sunday perspective, perspective, if you will, um, that was kind of how I rationalized my way of thinking through, okay, how do we get to this point, um, you know, given all the different things that were both impedances to Kubernetes success and other things that may need to evolve over time. So with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks for, as always, listening to the Sunday Perspective Show. I've gotten a lot of really nice feedback about folks saying, you know, we love the interview shows, but uh, it's it's nice to have a, a change of pace and, and, and to dive into some of these topics and just sort of have some opinions. So uh, continue to enjoy doing them. Thanks, as always, for listening. Thanks for giving us feedback. We've gotten uh, lots of lots of feedback. We appreciate the five stars. It always helps us move up some of the rankings, which means that sometimes new people are going to find the show, which helps us grow the community. So any chance you get to give us feedback, especially if it's five stars, uh, not only does it, uh, you know, strokes our ego a little bit, but more importantly, it just makes the show more visible and, and that helps us grow the community. And that helps us, you know, uh, you know, teach some people and, and share some knowledge and so forth. So you're, uh, you're doing good. Uh, any chance you, you do in giving us that feedback. So I'm going to wrap it up and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to the Cloudcast. Please visit the cloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 